Well, good morning and welcome once again to Hope. Certainly good to be with you as it is every week. It's a privilege and a, and a pleasure to uh, proclaim the word to you. At this time, if we have children that would like to go to our children's ministry program, uh, they can leave right out this back door. And uh, I think they're already gone. So anyway, uh, <laughs> they can leave right out the back door. The rest of you, I'd invite you to open your Bibles or whatever device you look up scripture on. Um, to open to Matthew chapter 1, stick a finger in it or on it, I guess, if you're in a device, and then Ruth chapter 1, and put another finger in that. So uh, that's Matthew chapter 1, and then Ruth chapter 1. We're going to start in Matthew. Leading up to Christmas Sunday this year, we're spending the sermon time walking through the lives of a few people who appear in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and uh, we're calling this series Family Christmas family Christmas, because we're investigating the family of Jesus from, uh, from Matthew chapter 1. Last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, I would encourage you to go listen to the audio podcast feed, uh, or catch it, you can look it up on Facebook or on our website, hopeofdixon.com. Uh, but go ahead, and if you, if you weren't here, you probably missed out, but last week we talked about Rahab the prostitute who believed God and ended up being listed in the family line of Jesus and kind of how all of that went about. And I said that, I made this statement that if there is room for someone like Rahab in the family of Jesus, then there's room for you and me as well. And today what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at the story of really two people who appear in this family line of Jesus. But let's read the first five verses of Matthew chapter 1 and find out who we're going to be investigating today. Matthew 1, 1 through 5. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. I actually read verse 6 there also. Sorry about that. I got kind of carried away. Uh, but... But what I just read is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and and let's ask God to help us understand and apply it and its significance in our life. Lord God, as we come and we spend time in your word, that even when we read a genealogy, God, that we understand that that's there for a reason. That is your word to us. That is you revealing yourself to us. Help us to understand its significance and apply it. And as we continue on in the book of Ruth, God, use your word in the way you see fit to change our hearts and help us see you more clearly, Jesus. I pray that I would, I would decrease and you would increase. That you would change our hearts, starting with mine. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The story of Ruth and Boaz, by the way, if you didn't guess, we're going to talk about Ruth and Boaz. You probably figured that out by the fact that I said we were going to be in the book of Ruth, right? So the story of Ruth and Boaz is found in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And this book is really, it's a truly a story of romance, of loyalty, 
and of covenant faithfulness. And I'm going to try to cover the entire thing today. I'm going to try and go through the entire book of Ruth today. Uh, There's simply no way that I can go in depth on every part of it. So I want to encourage you, when you go home, to read these four short chapters. only four chapters long. It doesn't take very long to read through it. I want to encourage you to read the book of Ruth so you can get uh, all of the rest of the story that I'm simply going to cover in summary fashion in order to get to some of the main points I want to cover. Based on what we see in verse 1 of chapter 1 in the book of Ruth, the story of the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. So this is during the time of the judges in Israel. Now, I don't know if you know about the period of time that we call the judges, but if you don't, that's okay. I'm going to fill you in. It's recounted in the book of Judges, which is right before Ruth. It comes right before Ruth in the canon of scripture. This was, the period of Judges was a 400 year period of time in Israel. This is after Israel had arrived in the promised land. They've come into the promised land. This was an incredibly dark time in Israel though. It was an incredibly dark time in Israel, this 400-year time of Judges. It was up and down. And the final verse in Judges actually illustrates it quite well. From Judges 21-25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, they were postmodern before postmodernism was a thing. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you look back at the period of Judges, you'll see there's a cycle, this cycle in Judges that repeats itself over and over again. That cycle is this. The people sin, and God sends enemies to oppress them. They, they, they give over to uh, the things that are against God, and God sends enemies that oppress them. And then eventually the people will cry out for help, and God sends a deliverer, referred to as a judge, to deliver them as an act of his mercy. And then the cycle repeats itself. The people sin again. Uh, Another country comes in, often a country, or a few times a country named Moab. All right, hang on to that. That's important for later. A country would come in, people would come against them, would, would oppose them, oppress them. They would cry out and then God would send them a judge. It was a dark time. But even during this dark time, we get a peek at the hidden work of God that's going on when we look at the book of Ruth. Even in the worst of times, God is at work. I thought this was especially um, just like God that I would have already planned this sermon series and this week we get the story of Ruth. I thought that was just prescient. I thought it was uh, on God, uh, not prescient. I thought it was, that's not the right word. Um, I just thought that was God. What a God thing. I, I know we overuse that. It's a God thing sort of thing, but I was just like, how, I was, Bethany looked at my computer while I was sitting there with my notes yesterday. She was like, oh, that's, that's what we're talking about this week? Let's explain by reading Ruth chapter one, one through five to just kind of get us set on what's going on in this story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. 
But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left with her two sons, with, excuse me, without her two sons and her husband. So there's a lot going on here. There's a bit of irony in this as well that I'm going to explain in just a minute, but I want you to see that these women, so you've got Naomi, uh, who's, by the way, her name means pleasant, which again, that's going to come into play later on, but Naomi, which means pleasant, so you've got Naomi, uh, mother-in-law, and she's got her two daughters-in-law whose husbands have both, so she's lost her husband, and then, uh, then she loses her sons, both of them, and so you've got three women mother-in-law and two daughters-in-law. Orpah and Ruth, Ruth got the better end of that name game, but uh, Orpah and Ruth, they're there with Naomi. This is important because these women had lost everything. In that culture, being a woman who, uh, whose husband is, had died was not like being in uh, modern times. You were all of a sudden like, how, are we, how am I gonna eat? How am I going to be provided for? A lot of times women in those days who would end up without a husband would fall prey into other prostitution or other things. There was all kinds of dangers out there because of the culture that they lived in and the times in which they lived. So we need to understand, and if you're taking notes, that's point number one, is Naomi and Ruth lost everything. Uh, so, did, so did Orpah, but as you're going to see in just a minute, she sort of exits the story. Naomi and Ruth had lost everything. Reading this passage, we can surmise some things about Elimelech and his family. There was a famine in the land, and this man had left Bethlehem. Again, there's some irony in that it's Bethlehem. He had left Bethlehem to go to Moab. Now here's the irony, well, here's part of the irony of Bethlehem. There's a famine there, and so he leaves the promised land, that God had given his people and he goes to Moab, he goes to the enemy territory basically because their fields are, are green, right? Their fields have food. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's a bit of an irony that he lives where God had called him to live, the house of bread, and he leaves and takes his family and leaves the house of bread during a famine. I want you to see some irony there. And while they're in Moab, while they're in enemy territory, while they're off sojourning in the land of Moab, not the promised land that God had given them, but while they're over there, Elimelech dies. And his sons end up taking Moabite wives Now, I don't know if you know this or not, and if you don't, again, it's okay because I'm going to tell you, but it was prohibited for Israelite, for Jewish men, to marry Moabite women. They were prohibited by the law. They were prohibited by God from marrying foreign wives. So they do marry these two foreign women, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and Ruth, who are foreigners. They're Moabites because they were in the land of Moab. So now, Malon and Chilion, 
Maybe don't give your kids rhyming names, by the way. Malon and Chilion die, and now you've got these three women left. Naomi's a widow. She's got to do something no parent ever wants to do, and that's bury their own children. And Orpah and Ruth have lost their husbands. They've lost everything, and I can imagine the deep sense of loss. And based on where they were at culturally, a sense of hopelessness that they may have left. Think about Naomi. She's in a foreign land. Yeah, she's been there for 10 years, but she's in a foreign land, away from her family, away from her people, and everything, everything and everyone she knows except these two daughter-in-laws is gone. No means of food, of provision. But then Naomi, at some point, she hears that back home in Israel, that famine that was going on is over and there's food there. So she decides to head back to her homeland and they're on their way back to the land of Judah. And Naomi tells her two daughter-in-laws to go back to their families and they weep over this, like they wept together. And they weren't going to do this, but she tells them again to go. So they weep and Orpah kisses Naomi and Orpah heads back to her people in Moab. So she goes home. She's like, I'm not going to go on to, you know, Naomi said, don't come on to Israel with me. You go back to your people, go back to the Moabites. And Orpah goes, but the scriptures tell us Ruth clung to Naomi. And we start to see what kind of Ruth is. Listen to verses 15 through 18 in Ruth chapter 1. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will, will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth was determined. And we see a loyalty, we see a love, and we see a determination. Ruth was determined that she was not going to leave Naomi's side. She was going with her. In fact, she would renounce her nation's gods and would serve Naomi's God. Some might see this as you read through this and are like, man, Ruth was kind of stubborn. You could say that, but not stubborn in the, uh, the sort of wrong way that people are stubborn when, when we talk about being stiff-necked and standing up against God or whatever. But she was stubborn in the right way, right? <laughs> she was determined. She wouldn't take no for an answer when it came to caring for Naomi. Naomi was like, no, 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 go. She tried a couple of times, right? Go back to your people, go back to your gods. And Ruth said, no. She was determined. She had counted the cost of what it was going to cost her, and she decided that she would go. She was taking Naomi's people as her people, making a decision to follow the God of Israel. And so they go, and they arrive back in the town of Bethlehem. Verse 19 says that the town was stirred because of them. Bethlehem was not a great big place, okay? 
And it says the town was stirred because these two ladies show back up in there. It reminded me of the small town I grew up in. I grew up in Winterset, Iowa. Right now it's a population of about 5,000. When I was growing up, it was less. And we knew most of the people in town growing up. Uh, you know, people knew who you were. Um, when Bethany and I got married, uh, we decided to go back and visit Winterset for the local fall festival. They have a festival called Covered Bridge Festival. It's a real big deal. Um, it's like the greatest small town festival. I grew, and growing up, I thought it was just the best thing ever. And as I got older, I was like, okay, you notice things that you didn't notice before. We were like, okay, that's, that's okay. You know, but I still think it's the greatest small town festival that I've ever been to. And we decided to go back, uh, I think it was the second year we were married, we decided to go back, first or second year, and we decided to go back for this festival in October, and we decided we were going to take two of our friends with us, our friends uh, Eric and Jesse. Uh, they were a married couple. Eric was just a normal-looking normal bald dude, okay? But Jesse had this long blonde hair that she had dyed electric blue. So the night before the festival, we're in small town, Winterset, Iowa, central Iowa, right? And we go uptown to walk around the square and look at the people setting up the booths and everything. Now, in my fantasized memory, people are like doing double takes and like falling off of ladders and walking through plate glass and, you know, like in the movies or something. Noticing us walking around with Jessie and her blue hair. See, the town was stirred. That's what I think of when I hear that the town was stirred when Naomi and Ruth show up. Uh, I can imagine the ladies talking to you you see that Naomi so-and-so, she's back. She hasn't been here in 10 years and she's back. Who's that lady she brought with her? You know, my mom, my mom kind of, kind of how I knew about that was my mom said later, people were asking her like, who was that girl with the blue hair? Uh, it was a good, good time. The town was stirred. But I want to see that, so, they, so Ruth clings to Naomi. She says she's going to be loyal to her. She's going to take on serving Naomi's God, and she's going to go back to Naomi's people. She's going to go live among God's people. And secondly, God provides Ruth and Naomi with a soft landing. God provides Ruth and Naomi with a soft landing. So Ruth tells Naomi, uh, let me go and glean the fields. This whole section might sound kind of strange to us. As you're reading through and you get to this part where she's asking to go glean in the fields, particularly after the workers have already been in the fields, that's going to sound kind of weird to you. But this whole section is based on, on the law of Moses where there was a provision uh, that was made to care for the poor. It was sort of like, welfare, uh, like a welfare-to-work program, okay, uh, that's not a political statement. That's just kind of trying to describe this. Basically, what it was was the poor were not, the poor were not supposed to sit around and wait on government handouts, but they were permitted to glean in the fields and around the edges after the main workers finished. They were allowed to pick uh, whatever was left over in the fields, and the farmers were actually supposed to leave the edges of their fields unharvested for this very purpose. Now, gleaning in the fields was very hard, hot work. Remember, you're in, you're in the Middle East, okay? It's not super cold there in the daytime. It was hot, hard work. 
And it would have been, could have been dangerous for a foreign woman who was not connected in any way to anyone there to keep her safe or for her to call out to if she was in distress. But here is loyal, hardworking Ruth offering to go out into the fields so that she and Naomi would not starve. So Ruth goes out, she goes out into a field, and by divine appointment, meaning by God's design, she ends up in a field belonging to a guy named Boaz, who is a relative of Naomi's husband. Ruth chapter 2 verse 3 says this, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I love the way scripture says she happened to end up in the field. She happened to come to the part of the field owned by someone Naomi was related to. This is significant. God put her where she needed to be for a redemption to happen. Boaz is said to be a worthy man. He was a God-fearing man who cared for the poor. And again, by divine appointment, Boaz comes to the field. So not only does she end up in a field owned by Boaz, but then Boaz shows up at the field that day to check on it, to check on the workers. And he sees Ruth. Verse 4 in Ruth chapter 2 says this, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And you can see what kind of greeting. You know, a lot of times you can tell who someone is in the way they greet uh, in Scripture. But he starts out greeting the reapers, right? His workers. The Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Boaz was a, was a godly man. He was a faithful man. But the Bible says worthy. He asks his workers who this woman is. He, he sees Ruth, right? He wants to know, who is this woman? And the foreman fills him in about her. Now, there was a vast divide in their social standing. She was a poor uh, widow from another country. And here he was, an Israelite landowner in the promised land. And yet, what I want you to hear, even though there was a vast gap in their social standings, I want you to hear how he speaks to her in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 2. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how, your, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel." under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You see the way he spoke to her? It was, it was caring. He had compassion for her. 
he knew what kind of a woman this was. He had heard that she had forsaken her homeland, her family, her home gods, and come with Naomi, the kindness and love she had shown to her. Boaz also provided food for her. She ate with the reapers, and this is an extraordinary act of kindness being shown to her, but he even tells his workers to be deliberately careless when they harvest, so there's plenty of of food left over for her to glean for her and Naomi. Boaz welcomed Ruth even though she was an outsider, and he made sure that she had enough food for both of them, for Naomi and her both. So Ruth heads home, and she shares what happened with Naomi tells her about her day. Ruth 2.20 says this, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our reapers. So Ruth didn't even know, or sorry, one of our redeemers. I said reapers, sorry. One of our redeemers. I read that too fast. Ruth didn't even know that this guy she ended up with in the field, who spoke so kindly to her, knew about what she'd done for her mother-in-law, apparently didn't know that he was one of their redeemers, that he was a close relative. That phrase, one of our redeemers, might kind of hit you a little differently. This is a reference to something that God had set up in the law. Someone in the family a relative could act as what they call a kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer was obligated to buy back relatives that sold themselves into slavery because they'd gotten too much into debt. According to Ian M. Duguid, he says this, under certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer also had an obligation to marry the widow and raise up a child for a brother who had died childless. In this way, the inheritance would continue to be associated with the name of the man who had died. So you have this idea of kinsman redeemer. Someone has has sold themselves into slavery because they had too much debt. The kinsman redeemer would come and purchase them out of that slavery. There was also this um, uh, leveret marriage thing where if a if a guy died and he had no kids, that the the next relative would marry the wife and give a a child to have the inheritance so that the man's name and family line would continue. So Ruth and Naomi, and and I recognize that for us that sounds weird, but that was the way it was set up in the law uh, by God, and that was culturally what was going on. Ruth and Naomi make a plan for how to approach Boaz about enacting this redemption of them. And there's a whole account of it in Ruth chapter 3, but let me just say it works. The pl- their plan works. Okay, there's some going in and uncovering feet and laying at someone's feet, and you can, you can read all about that in Ruth chapter 3. But the plan worked. And in ch- uh, Ruth chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, we hear what Boaz has to say. Beginning in verse 10, it says, And he said... May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. 
Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. I want you to see something here. There are plenty of loopholes that Boaz probably could have justified himself in taking an easy way out of the situation. He wasn't a brother, and and as we find out in the passage, there was another redeemer who was first in line. There's another guy that was a closer, uh, closer redeemer than him to the situation that would be first in line. But let's read and find out how Boaz makes the necessary arrangements to redeem Ruth because we know they end up together because we read that in Matthew chapter 1. So how does he go about doing this? We find out that Boaz makes the necessary arrangements to redeem Ruth and to provide for her and Naomi. We read about that in Ruth chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. I want you to see something here as we kind of move into like giving a kind of a summary and, and looking at what all this says about the Lord. Boaz was not trying to do the bare minimum. He wasn't concerned with just meeting the obligations of the law. His heart belonged to the Lord. He'd been touched and softened by God's covenant faithfulness and his heart overflowed. That overflow of that God's covenant faithfulness and love moved him to action to those around him. His faithfulness caused, God's faithfulness caused Boaz to have faithfulness to Ruth and Naomi in redeeming them and providing for their future. But he wasn't concerned to just do the minimum. Well, this is all I have to do. He actually made arrangements and figured out a way to redeem them because his heart belonged to the Lord. 
He wasn't, con- he wasn't concerned with just meeting obligations. He was concerned with serving the Lord faithfully and well. Do you know somebody like that in your life? Maybe it's you. But do you know somebody who isn't content with just doing the minimum for the Lord? But they go above and beyond because of their deep love for the Lord and for you? Someone who serves with no thought for themselves. This other guy could have redeemed. He was closer. But he said, no, no, it, it will. Once he found out there was this Ruth situation, it's funny we're calling her a situation. Once he found out there was this Ruth situation, he said, no, no, that'll impair my own inheritance. Boaz doesn't seem to be worried about that. As a result, Ruth and Boaz end up in the family line of Jesus, and the other guy, we don't even know his name. One commentator I read called him Mr. So-and-so, or Mr. No-Name. So what happens as a result of this? Ruth chapter 4, 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. And that's important for a few reasons. Number one, that's important because they give this little mini genealogy there at the end in Ruth, at the end of this, to let you know that King David, their mightiest king, came from there. That he came out of this story of (laughs) redemption out of dark circumstances. And it was foretold, eventually, people reading this afterwards would know that in the rest of the New Testament, it's foretold that the Messiah would come from the line of David. God uses Boaz to show his goodness to Naomi. Not, not to show Boaz's goodness, to show God's goodness, to show his faithfulness to Naomi. She'd been bitter because of what had happened to her family. She had been bitter, and one part of the story that I didn't mention, she even told people to start calling her Mara, which means bitter, instead of Naomi, which means pleasant, right? So she went from being pleasant to being bitter, okay? We, like, we know people like this, right? And she had told people to call her bitter because she was so bitter, and the bitterness of what had happened to her. But through God's loving kindness... Even through her bitterness, he showed her his goodness. See, God's goodness doesn't depend on us. God, God's, God is good and faithful, and his grace to us in Jesus doesn't depend on us. Jesus did it all for us on the cross. That's grace. Where we get what we don't deserve Jesus gets what we deserved. He gets he get judgment for our sin on the cross and we get 
his righteousness, forgiveness, love, redemption. Ruth becomes part of Israel. She becomes part of the people of God. And not only this, but this act of love that she did for Naomi and that Boaz did towards Ruth end up landing them in the family line of Jesus Christ himself. Truly, this is light out of darkness. It's life out of death. John Piper wrote a book about Ruth, and he titled it, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. A Sweet and Bitter Providence. Friends, our momentary suffering and our troubles, even though they don't seem momentary to us, they seem like they're going to last a long time. Our momentary troubles, our suffering... They're designed to bring us to God. They're designed to cause us to be more like him, for us to grow in our faith, not to run. See, they play, our suffering, they play into God's sovereign purposes in our lives. In Ruth's case, it was also to bring about salvation in Jesus for those who call on his name. Like, God used her husband dying, her father-in-law dying, to set up and bring about the family line from which he would bring Jesus. And at the time, when they're burying Malon and Chilion, if you had asked them, the ladies, if they thought that something really good was going to come from this, they probably, I mean, I don't know, but probably they would not have said yes. Because usually when we are in the midst of our suffering, we can't possibly see how God could do anything wonderful out of this. But he proved that to Naomi and to us through that story. Elizabeth Elliot, I don't know if you know who she is. Uh, she was the wife of a missionary. Uh, Jim Elliot. They made a movie about Jim Elliot called The End of the Spear. Uh, I've actually never seen the movie, but some of you probably have. Um, it, it was uh, Nate Saint, Jim Elliot, and another guy. They were missionaries. They flew into a remote area. Um, the tribe they were trying to share the gospel with uh, killed them. And then, like a year later, Elizabeth Elliot went back and did missions to this tribe, and they became Christians. And uh, this woman, Elizabeth Elliot, incredible story. She just passed away a few years ago, but she said this. I, and here, knowing her story will help you. Uh, this may hit even harder. She said this. God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. And sometimes those things are really hard things. But they make us more like Jesus. I'm going to invite our musicians to kind of make their way toward the front as I finish up. But during this season of Advent, of waiting for the celebration and joy of Christmas, I want us to just sit in that for a bit. In the darkness, in the suffering, there's anticipation for the dawn. 
God's ultimate plan is not that we're happy and healthy, but that we be more like him. He will spend, God will spend your whole life from the time you come to know him as Savior until you die growing you and sanctifying you so that you look more and more like Jesus. And this sometimes comes with pain, but always with grace. It's always an act of the grace of God. And when we see the Redeemer Boaz in this story, our minds should go beyond him to our ultimate Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this was happening, setting up and leading to the birth of Christ, the perfect God-man who lived a perfect life and would give that life on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me to redeem us out of the bondage to slavery, to sin. And he rose from the dead, proving that God accepted that sacrifice as sufficient and showing that death no longer has a hold on us. But before Jesus came, there was darkness and silence suffering. Much like the, 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 the intertestamental period, so the period of time between the New Testament and the Old Testament before Jesus uh, was born on earth, we call it the 400 silent years where God was silent. It was a dark time. But just because God is silent doesn't mean he's not doing something. Doesn't mean he's not moving. There was darkness and silence, and then the burst of light at the birth of Christ come to live among us and redeem us as our Redeemer. And now, today, you can know him, believe the gospel, repent of your sin, believe the gospel. You can have a personal relationship one-on-one with him. And even though we sit, and our world is pretty dark. I don't know if you've noticed. It's pretty dark. We sit and we wait for the second advent when he returns. We could know him, have relationship with him, and expect the promise to be fulfilled that one day the clouds roll back as a scroll, as the song says. Jesus returns for his people, for his church. And at that point, all of the mourning All of the tears, all of the sorrow is gone. And we get to dwell eternally in the presence of our Savior. If you don't know him, man, let today be the day of salvation. If you do know him, as we stand and we sing, rejoice. And take that joy that you have in knowing the Savior to the world. Because there's a lot of Ruth and Naomi's out there who've lost everything and have no hope. And we sit here and we've got it and we know you can have hope in Jesus. Pray for those divine appointments. It may be that you may leave here and tomorrow you may show up in a field or grocery store. Most of you probably shouldn't be in a field. A grocery store or a coffee shop or an office where there's someone who you're there for the divine appointment. Pray for it. Pray to have eyes to see it. And then be obedient when you show up there to share the goodness of God. Would you stand and pray with me?
Father God, I, I just am so in awe of you. I'm in awe of the fact that you've put me in Dixon, Illinois, behind this pulpit. I don't deserve it, God. I just pray that, that if nothing else, God, that today your love, your kindness would seem even more real to us. Because it's real. Someone asked me last week if I really believe this stuff. I, I do. I do, Jesus. I believe you. I take you at your word. Help us to trust in you. Even though we come with brokenness, we come with our imperfections, we come with our, uh, our mess and our sin, you offer to clean us up, to forgive us, and to make us new, and give us your right standing before God, Jesus. We thank you for that. Thank you for the message of the gospel. Use us. Bring us revival in our hearts individually and one as a church. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.